This son, who was the granduncle of the subject of this notice, had previously embraced the Reformation cause, which he promoted with all the ardor of youthful zeal, and he too was one of the lords of the congregation who subscribed the famous band to which allusion has just now been made. Of her mother little is known. To her, Sir William Alexander, afterward Earl of Stirling, inscribed his Aurora in 1604, and he gallantly says of his amatory fancies that as they were the fruit of beauty, so shall they be sacrificed as oblations to beauty. It may also be stated that Park, in his edition of Walpole's Royal and Noble Authors, has a portrait of her mother taken from a painting in the collection of Lady Mary Coke. Footnote. Volume 5, page 64. End footnote. Of this parent, she had the misfortune to be deprived in her tender years. Her father married for his second wife on the 30th of November, 1610, in the parish church of St. Botolph, Bishopsgate, London, Anne, daughter of Sir William Cornwallis of Brome, ancestor of Marquis Cornwallis by Lucy, daughter of John Neville, Lord Latimer. About eight years after this marriage, he went to Spain, and having entered into the service of Philip III, distinguished himself in the wars of that monarch against the states of Holland. Through the influence of his second wife, who was a papist, he embraced the popish religion, although he had for the best part of his life been a warm and zealous Protestant. He returned to England in 1638 and died at London the same year, aged about 62. Footnote Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 94, and Volume 2, page 274. Playfair's British Family Antiquities, Volume 3, pages 127 and 247. End footnote. In her early years, Lady Jane was of a delicate constitution, and she suffered much from bodily affliction. It was no doubt hard to human nature to languish at a period of life when she might naturally have looked for health and enjoyment. But as we may gather from Mr. Samuel Rutherford's and Mr. Robert McWard's letters to her, this became, by the divine blessing, the means of impressing upon her youthful mind a deep sense of the importance of religion and of bringing her to the saving knowledge of Christ. Rutherford, writing to her, says, I am glad that ye have been acquainted from your youth with the wrestlings of God. I think it great mercy that your Lord from your youth hath been hedging in your outstraying affections, that they may not go a-whoring from himself. I knew and saw him, Christ, with you in the furnace of affliction, for there he wooed you to himself and chose you to be his. Footnote. Letters of Mr. Samuel Rutherford, White and Kennedy's Edition, Edinburgh, 1848, pages 8, 45, and 58. End footnote. And McWard, in a letter to her, says, he made you bear the yoke in your youth, and was it not in the wilderness that he first allured you and spoke to your heart? And when come to greater age, ye wanted not your domestic fires and house, house furnace. Footnote, Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 58, Folio Number 53. End footnote. In youth, too, she imbibed that strong attachment to Presbyterian principles which distinguished her during the whole of her future life. This lady was first married to Sir John Gordon of Lochinvar, afterward Viscount of Kenmure, 
The exact date of this union we have not ascertained, but we find her mentioned as his wife early in 1626. Mr. John Livingstone, who had visited Galloway in the beginning of the summer of that year upon the invitation of Sir John Gordon, informs us in his life that during the short period of his sojourn in that district he got acquaintance with Lord Kenyon and his religious lady. Footnote. Select biographies printed for the Wadrill Society, Volume 1, page 135. Douglas is therefore mistaken in saying in his peerage, volume 2, page 27, that their marriage took place in 1628. End footnote. Sir John was a man of accomplishment and piety, and like his lady, a warm friend to the Presbyterian interest. As Roscoe, the place of his residence, was situated in the parish of Anwath, he made no small exertions, and ultimately with success to effect the disjunction of that parish from two other parishes. Footnote. These were Kirkdale and Kirkmabrek. End footnote. With which it was united, and to get it erected into a separate parish having a minister exclusively to itself. He had first an eye to Mr. John Livingstone as its minister, whom, with that view as we have seen, he invited to Galloway, but who, before the difficulties in the way of its erection into a separate parish were overcome, accepted a call from Torpecken. He, however, succeeded in obtaining for Anwath Mr. Samuel Rutherford, nor was his zeal limited to his endeavors to obtain an efficient gospel minister to his own parish, the extension of the same blessing through the length and breadth of the land being an object in which he felt the deepest interest. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 7. End footnote. Lady Gordon and her husband were thus placed under the ministry of Mr. Samuel Rutherford. This they accounted a high privilege, and they were in no small degree instrumental, both by the example of a Christian deportment and by the influence of a high station in promoting the interests of true religion among their fellow parishioners. From the beginning, Lady Gordon formed a very high opinion of Rutherford's talents and piety, and as the course of his ministry advanced, she appreciated, in an increasing degree, his pastoral diligence and faithfulness. Rutherford, on the other hand, highly esteemed her for the amiableness of her disposition, the humility of her demeanor, and the sanctity of her deportment, as well as for her enlightened and warm attachment to the Presbyterian cause. An intimate Christian friendship was thus soon formed between them, and they maintained frequent epistolary intercourse on religious subjects till the death of Rutherford, the last of whose letters to her, dated July 24, 1660, scarcely eight months before his own death, was written on hearing that her brother, the Marquis of Argyle, was imprisoned by Charles II in the Tower of London. Many of his letters to her have been printed and are well known. All of them evidently indicate his conviction that he was writing to one whose attainments in religion were of no ordinary kind, as well as the deep interest which he took in her spiritual welfare and comfort, and they abound in grateful acknowledgments of the numerous tokens of kindness and generosity which he had received at her hands. None of her letters to him have been preserved. But from the allusions to them in his letters, we gather that they were characterized by a strain of sincere and humble piety, by the confidence of genuine friendship, the warmth of Christian sympathy, and a spirit of active benevolence. She complained that notwithstanding all the methods adopted by her Savior to teach her, she was yet an ill scholar, 
lamented her deficiencies in the practice of holiness and expressed her fears that she had little grace, but encouraged herself from the consideration that God's compassions failed not, although her service to him miscarried. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, pages 123, 183, 200, 203 to 205. End footnote. In all her difficulties, doubts, and trials, she applied to him for advice and comfort in the happy art of communicating which he was, equal, which he was equaled by few. And such was the confidence she reposed in his piety, wisdom, and prudence that she could communicate the state of her mind to him with more freedom than almost to any other individual with whom she was acquainted. Of all his friends, none took a deeper interest in his welfare than she took. Tender in her feelings, she warmly sympathized with him under his domestic afflictions, under the loss of his children and his wife. Footnote Rutherford's Letters, pages 57, 65, 67 End footnote Her influence she was ever ready to exert in his behalf when he was subjected to public suffering in the cause of truth. And instances are not wanting of persons in high places befriending him from a knowledge of the Christian intimacy which subsisted between him and this excellent lady. When he was summoned to appear before the Court of High Commission in 1630, Mr. Alexander Colville, one of the judges, for respect to your ladyship, says Rutherford to her, was my great friend and wrote a most kind letter to me. I entreat your ladyship to thank Mr. Alexander Colville with two lines of a letter. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 21. End footnote. When he was before the same court in 1636, the Lord, says he, writing to Marion McNaught, has brought me a friend from the highlands of Argyle, my Lord of Lorne. Footnote. Brother to Lady Kenmure and afterward the Marquis of Argyle, who suffered in 1661. End footnote who has done as much as was within the compass of his power. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 105. End footnote. An act of generosity which he doubtless owed to his friendship with Lady Gordon, for he was a poor unknown stranger to his lordship. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 107. End footnote. And when her influence was insufficient to shield him from persecution, he could calculate upon being a sharer in her sympathies and prayers, as his numerous letters to her from Aberdeen, when confined a prisoner there by the High Commission Court, fully testify. Writing to her from his place of confinement, June 17, 1637, he says, I am somewhat encouraged in that your ladyship is not dry and cold to Christ's prisoner, as some are. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 409. End footnote. And in a letter to Lady Culross from the same place and in the same year, he thus writes, I know also that ye are kind to my worthy Lady Kenmure, a woman beloved of the Lord, who hath been very mindful of my bonds. The Lord give her and her child to find mercy in the day of Christ. Footnote. Rutherford's Letter, page 438. End footnote. Lady Gordon, who had suffered much from ill health in the previous part of her life, was, in July 1628, visited with sickness. Under this affliction, Rutherford reminded her that he who knew the frame and constitution of her nature, and what was most healthful for her soul, 
held every cup of affliction to her head with his own gracious hand, and that her tender-hearted Savior, who knew the strength of her stomach, would not mix that cup with one dram weight of poison. Footnote Rutherford's Letters, page 5 End footnote About the close of the same year or the beginning of the year 1629, she was bereaved of an infant daughter. On this occasion, Rutherford visited her to administer Christian comfort and afterward kindly addressed to her a consolatory letter. Among other things, he suggested to her these considerations so finely expressed and so well fitted to sustain the afflicted spirit of a mother under such trial. Ye have lost a child. Nay, she is not lost to you who is found to Christ. She is not sent away, but only sent before like unto a star which going out of your sight doth not die and evanish, but shineth in another hemisphere. Ye see her not, yet she doth shine in another country. If her glass was but a short hour, what she wanteth of time, that she hath gotten of eternity. And ye have to rejoice that ye have now some plenishing up in heaven. Show yourself a Christian by suffering without murmuring. In patience, possess your soul. Footnote Rutherford's Letters, pages 8 to 10. End footnote. In the autumn of the year 1629, she and her husband removed from Roscoe to London, where they intended to reside for some time. Footnote Murray, in his Memoirs of Lord Kenmure, prefixed to an edition of this Last and Heavenly Speeches, says that they removed to Edinburgh, but this must be a mistake, for Rutherford, bidding Lady Gordon farewell on that occasion, says that he had small assurance ever to see her face again till the last general assembly, where the whole church universal shall meet, language which he would not probably have used had she only removed to Edinburgh. And he further says, Ye are going to a country where the sun of righteousness in the gospel shineth not so clearly as in this kingdom. Rutherford's Letters, page 10. End footnote. The design of Sir John in going to London probably was to prosecute his views of worldly honor and ambition. By right of his mother, who was Lady Isabel Ruthven, daughter of William, 1st Earl of Gowrie, he expected that the honors of the House of Gowrie, attained for high treason, in 1600 would be revived in his person. With the view of making this acquisition, he is said to have sold the lands of Stitchell. Footnote. He was served heir to his father, 20th of March, 1629, his father having died in November, 1628. Douglas of Peerage, Volume 2, page 27. End footnote. He is said to have sold the lands of Stitchell, the ancient inheritance of the family, and to have given to the Duke of Buckingham, the evening before his assassination by Felton, the purchase price in a purse of gold as a bribe to him to support his claims. Footnote Douglas's Peerage, Volume 2, page 27 End footnote Lady Gordon's change of residence brought about by these circumstances in less than two years after Rutherford's induction was no small loss both to him and to his people, and he lamented her departure as one of the heaviest trials he had met with since the Lord had called him to the ministry. 
But, says he, I perceive God will have us to be deprived of whatsoever we idolize that he may have his own room. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 11. End footnote. During her absence, she and Rutherford maintained a regular epistolary correspondence. He assured her how exceedingly he longed to hear of her spiritual welfare and that it was his constant prayer at the throne of grace that while deprived, as she then was, of the comfort of a lively ministry, God might be to her as a little sanctuary, and that as she advanced in years and steeled forward insensibly toward eternity, her faith might grow and ripen for the Lord's harvest. Footnote Rutherford's Letters, pages 17, 20, and 37 End footnote in her communications to him, she complained of bodily infirmity and weakness, but Rutherford reminds her that it is better to be sick, providing Christ come to the bedside and draw aside the curtains and say, Courage, I am thy salvation, rather than to enjoy health, being lusty and strong, and never to be visited of God. He also regrets her absence for the sake of the interest of religion in her native country. We would think it a blessing, says he, to our Kirk to see you here. She and her husband appear to have remained in England till about the close of the year 1631 when they returned to Scotland and settled at Kenmere Castle, a place about twenty miles distant from Anwath, and which has ever since been the residence of the family. Footnote Rutherford's Letters, pages 39 and 40. End footnote. During her stay in England, notwithstanding reports to the contrary, she had not changed upon nor wearied of her sweet master Christ and his service, and Rutherford still expected that whatever she could do by word or deed for the Lord's friendless Zion, she would do it. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 44. End footnote. Early in the year 1633 she was bereaved of another daughter who died in infancy as we learn from a letter written to her by Rutherford on the 1st of April that year. I have heard also, madam, that your child is removed, but to have or want is best as he pleaseth. Whether she be with you or in God's keeping, think it all one. Nay, think it the better of the two by far that she is with him. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 56. End footnote. By letters patent, dated 8th of May, 1633, her husband was created Viscount of Kenmure and Lord of Lochinvar, the title descending to his heirs male, whatever bearing the name and arms of Gordon, and she was with him in Edinburgh when he attended King Charles I at the Parliament in June that year. But after staying only a few days, they returned home to their country seat, the castle of Kenmure. The reason of their early departure was this. In that parliament, Charles intended to pass two acts, the one ratifying the acts of Perth Assembly and other acts made for settling and advancing the estate of bishops, and the other asserting the king's prerogative to impose the surplus and other popish apparel upon ministers. Footnote. Scott's Apologetical Narration, page 340, Rutherford's Letters, page 490. End footnote. For neither of these acts could Lord Kenmure, according to his convictions of duty, give his vote. But instead of attending the Parliament 
and honestly opposing the passing of these acts, as others nobly did, at a juncture when the safety of the Presbyterian cause demanded the most decided and energetic measures on the part of its friends, he pusillanimously deserted the Parliament under pretense of indisposition for fear of incurring the displeasure of his prince, who had already elevated him to the peerage, and from whom he expected additional honors, a dereliction of duty for which at the time, as he afterward declared he felt fearful wrestlings of conscience, and which caused him the most bitter remorse in his dying moments. When in Edinburgh, Lady Kenmure had an opportunity of witnessing the imposing splendor and gaiety of a court, but scenes which have so often dazzled and intoxicated others only served the more deeply to impress upon her mind what she had long before learned by the teaching of the Spirit of God, the empty and evanescent nature of all the glitter and pageantry of the world. I bless the Lord Jesus Christ, said Rutherford to her on her return, who hath brought you home again to your country from that place where ye have seen with your eyes that which our Lord's truth taught you before, to wit, that worldly glory is nothing but a vapor, a shadow, the foam of the water, or something less and lighter, even nothing, and that our Lord hath not without cause said in his word, The countenance or fashion of this world passeth away. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 76. End footnote. Worldly honor and splendor had, however, more attractions for her husband. So great an influence had they of late acquired over his mind that though there is every reason to believe he was a converted man, yet he had fallen into a state of comparative indifference both as to personal religion and the public interests of the church. Rutherford, it would seem, perceived this and with his characteristic fidelity urges it upon Lady Kenmure as a part of the truth of her profession to drop words in the ears of her noble husband continually of eternity, judgment, death, hell, heaven, the honorable profession, the sins of his father's house. I know, says he, he looketh homeward and loveth the truth, but I pity him with my soul because of his many temptations." Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 59. End footnote. With this counsel from her eminently religious character, we need not doubt that she would comply. In the spring of 1634, she lost another daughter, who had become dangerously ill toward the close of the preceding year, and who was only about a year old. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, pages 59 and 63. End footnote. Writing to Marion McNaught, April 25, 1634, Rutherford says, Know that I have been visiting Lady Kenmure. Her child is with the Lord. I entreat you, visit her, and desire the good wife of Barcapel to visit her, and Knockbreck. Footnote. Robert Gordon of Knockbreck. End footnote. If you see him in the town. My lord, her husband, is absent, and I think she will be heavy. And in a consolatory letter addressed to herself on that occasion, he thus writes, I believe faith will teach you to kiss a striking lord, and so acknowledge the sovereignty of God in the death of a child, to be above the power of us mortal men, who may pluck up a flower in the bud and not be blamed for it. If our dear Lord pluck up one of his roses and pull down sour and green fruit before harvest, who can challenge him? Footnote. 
Rutherford's Letters, page 65. End footnote. In the autumn of 1634, she met with a still more severe trial in the death of Lord Kenmure. His lordship left Kenmure Castle for Edinburgh in the month of August that year, probably on business connected with the earldom of Gowrie, to which he was so desirous of being elevated. But it was the ordination of Providence that his hopes of his preferment should never be realized. After staying some days in Edinburgh, he came home toward the end of August under much indisposition. It turned out to be a fever of which, after enduring much suffering, he died on the 12th of September at the early age of 35. Having, as we have just now said, been for some, pa- some time past less careful in cultivating personal piety and less zealous in promoting the public interests of the Church than in former days, he was painfully conscious of his want of preparation for death, and at first the most poignant remorse took possession of his conscience, causing many a pang of anguish and many a bitter tear to flow. Among the sins which at that solemn period came crowding into his memory, that which occasioned him the greatest agony was his deserting the Parliament the preceding year. Since I did lie down on this bed, said he to Mr. Andrew Lamb, the Bishop of Galloway who visited him, the sin that lay heaviest on my soul and hath burdened my conscience most was my withdrawing of myself from the Parliament and not giving my voice for the truth against those things which they call indifferent. For in so doing I have denied the Lord my God. But by the judicious counsels of Rutherford, who continued with him at the castle almost from the commencement of his illness to his death, he was led to improve the peace-speaking blood of Christ, and thus attaining to the full assurance that God in his abounding mercy had pardoned his sins, he enjoyed much comfort in passing through the dark valley of the shadow of death. A A few minutes before its departure, Rutherford engaged in prayer, and in the time of that last prayer his lordship was observed joyfully smiling and looking up with glorious looks, as was observed by the beholders, and with a certain beauty his visage was beautified, as beautiful as ever he was in his life. And the expiry of his breath, the ceasing of the motion of his pulse, which the physician was still holding, corresponded exactly with the amen of the prayer, and so he died sweetly and holily, and his end was peace. Footnote, the last and heavenly speeches and glorious departure of John, Viscount of Kenmure, by Samuel Rutherford. End footnote. During the whole of his illness, Lady Kenmure watched over him with affectionate tenderness and care. Of her kind and unwearied attentions, as well as of her high Christian excellence, he was deeply sensible. He gave her, diverse times, and that openly, an honorable and ample testimony of holiness and goodness, and of all respectful kindness to him, earnestly craved her forgiveness wherein he had offended her, desired her to make the Lord her comforter, and observed that he was gone before, and that it was but fifteen or sixteen years up or down. She felt in a special manner deeply anxious about the state of his soul, when on the first night of Rutherford's arrival at Kenmure Castle his lordship expressed to him his fears of death and desired him to stay with him and show him the marks of a child of God, for, said he, you must be my second in this combat. She judiciously observed, you must have Jesus Christ to be your second. 
an observation in which he cordially concurred. At another time, when from the hopes of recovery inspired by the temporary abating of the fever, he became much less concerned about the salvation of his soul than before, it is particularly mentioned in this, in his last and heavenly speeches, that this was to her a source of no small distress. Under this painful bereavement, Lady Kenmure was enabled to exercise a pious resignation to the will of her heavenly Father, all whose dispensations toward her she believed to be in wisdom and love, a consideration which proved her chief support and surest consolation under her afflictions. In attaining to this desirable state of mind, she was greatly aided by Rutherford, who, while he remained at the castle, allayed her sorrow by his prayers and counsels, and who, on his return home, still addressing himself to the task of soothing her grief, wrote her a very comforting letter two days after the fatal event. And, albeit, says he, I must out of some experience say the mourning for the husband of your youth be by God's own mouth the heaviest worldly sorrow, Joel 1.8. And though this be the weightiest burden that ever lay upon your back, yet ye know, when the fields are emptied and your husband now asleep in the Lord, if ye shall wait upon him who hideth his face for a while, that it lieth upon God's honor and truth to fill the field and to be a husband to the widow. Speaking of Lord Kenmure, he says, Remember that star that shined in Galloway is now shining in another world. And in reference to the past trials of her life as well as to the present, he observes, I dare say that God's hammering of you from your youth is only to make you a fair carved stone in the high upper temple of the new Jerusalem. Your Lord never thought this world's vain painted glory a gift worthy of you, and therefore would not bestow it on you because he is to present you with a better portion. I am now expecting to see, and that with joy and comfort, that which I hoped of you since I knew you fully, even that ye have laid such strength upon the Holy One of Israel that ye defy troubles, and that your soul is a castle that, it, that, may, be de, be, that may be besieged but cannot be taken. What have you to do here? This world never looked like a friend upon you. You owe it little love. It looked ever sour-like upon you. Footnote Rutherford's Letters Pages 68 and 69. End footnote. In another letter he writes, in reference to the same subject, In this late visitation that hath befallen your ladyship, ye have seen God's love and care in such a measure that I thought our Lord broke the sharp point off the cross and made us and your ladyship see Christ take possession and infestment upon the earth of him who is now reigning and triumphing with the 144,000 who stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 72. End footnote. Under this bereavement she had the kind condolence of many honorable friends and worthy professors. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 73. To this nobleman, besides the three daughters who, as we have already seen, died in infancy, she had a son, John, second by account of Kenmure, who was served heir to his father in his large estates in the stewardry of Kirkedbright, 17th of March, 1635, 
and whose testamentary tutors were Archibald, Marquis of Argyll, and William, Earl of Morton. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 2, page 27. Besides these children, it is not unlikely she had some others who also died in infancy. Rutherford, writing to her in 1634, says that the Lord had taken away from her many children. Rutherford's Letters, page 78. End footnote. This son, John, was born after his father's death about the close of the year 1634, or early in the year 1635. Footnote. In one of Rutherford's letters to her, dated November 29, 1634, obvious allusions are made to her being near the time of her confinement, and the child born was evidently this son, for Rutherford reminds her after his death that she had got a four years' loan of him. He would, he would be some months more than four years of age. End footnote. And this son John died in infancy in August 1639 at the age of four years and some months. He had long before been in so delicate health as to excite the apprehensions of his mother whose maternal solicitudes were all concentrated in her tender watchfulness over her infant boy. His death, therefore, could not be said to have come unexpected, nor could she be altogether unprepared for the stroke. But still the removal of this much-loved and caressed child inflicted a deep wound on the affectionate mother's heart. He was her only son and her only remaining child, the heir of his father's wealth and honors, and by his death the honors and estates of the noble house of Kenmure would pass into another family. All these circumstances would naturally entwine her affections around him and increase the pangs of maternal agony when he was taken from her and laid in the grave. I confess, writes Rutherford to her, it seems strange to me that your Lord should have done that which seemed to ding out the bottom of your worldly comforts. But we see not the ground of the Almighty's sovereignty. He goeth by on our right hand and on our left hand, and we see him not. We see but pieces of the broken links of the chain of his providence, and he cogeth the wheels of his own providence that we see not. O oh, let the form former work his own clay into what frame he pleaseth. Shall any teach the Almighty knowledge? If he pursue the dry stubble, who dare say, What doest thou? Do not wonder to see the judge of the world weave into one web your mercies and the judgments of the house of Kenmure. He can make one web of contrarieties. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 578. End footnote. God, however, does nothing without wise and holy reasons, and the spiritual improvement of his people is an end of which he never loses sight in all the trials with which he visits them. But, adds Rutherford in the same letter, my weak advice with reverence and correction were for you, dear and worthy lady, to see how far mortification goeth on, and what scum the Lord's fire casteth out of you. I do not say that heavier afflictions prophesy heavier guiltiness. A cross is often but a false prophet in this kind, but I am sure that our Lord would have the tin and the bastard metal in you removed. Lest the Lord say, The bellows are burnt, the lead is consumed in the fire, the founder melteth in vain. Jeremiah 6.29 
And in the conclusion he thus counsels her, It is a Christian art to comfort yourself in the Lord, to say, I was obliged to render back again this child to the giver. And if I have had four years loan of him, and Christ's eternity's possession of him, the Lord hath kept condition with me. Lady Kenmure, on the 21st of September, 1640, nearly a year after the death of her son, married for her second husband the Honorable Sir Henry Montgomery of Giffen, second son of Alexander, sixth Earl of Eglinton. This new relation proved a source of happiness to both. Sir Henry was an excellent man. His sentiments on religious and ecclesiastical questions corresponded with her own, and he is described as an active and faithful friend of the Lord's Kirk. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 623. End footnote. But the union, which was without issue, did not last long. She was soon left a widow a second time, in which state she lived till a very venerable age. The exact time of Sir Henry's death we have not discovered. Rutherford addressed a letter to her on that occasion from St. Andrews, but it wants the date of the year. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 623. End footnote. Though by this second marriage she became Lady Montgomery, we shall take the liberty still to designate her, Lady Kenmure, as this is the name by which she is most generally known. Subsequently to this, Rutherford's letters to her furnish few additional facts respecting her history. They contain repeated allusions to her bodily infirmities, and from their tone it is manifest that she had attained to much maturity and grace and that all the sad losses, trials, sicknesses, infirmities, griefs, heaviness, and inconstancy of the creature had been ripening her for heaven. There is also evidence that she continued steadfast in the principles of the Second Reformation and adhered in her judgment to the Presbyterian party called the protesters regarding the policy of the resolutioners, what it really was, as inconsistent with the obligations of the Solemn League and Covenant, of which, if she did not enter into it, she cordially approved. I am glad, says Rutherford, writing to her from Glasgow, September 28, 1651, that your breath serveth you to run to the end in the same condition and way wherein ye have walked these twenty years past. The Lord, it is true, hath hath stained the pride of all our glory, and now, last of all, the sun hath gone down upon many of the prophets. I hear that your ladyship hath the same esteem of the despised cause and covenant of our Lord that ye had before. Madam, hold you there. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 679. End footnote. Much would it have gratified both these eminent saints to have lived to see the despised cause and covenant of the Lord honored and prospering in the land, but this neither of them was privileged to witness. Writing to her in the autumn of 1659, Rutherford tells her of the satisfaction it would afford him should God be pleased to lengthen out more time to her that she might, before her eyes were shut, see more of the work of the right hand of the Lord in reviving a swooning and crushed land and church. Footnote. Rutherford's Letters, page 695. End footnote. More time was indeed lengthened out to her, but it was to see not the work of God in reviving the church, 
but the work of man in laying it waste and in persecuting even to the death its ministers and members. Her highly esteemed correspondent was removed by death on the eve of these calamities, having died on the 20th of March, 1661, just in time to escape being put to an ignominious death for the testimony of Jesus. He was taken away from the evil to come. She survived him above eleven years, witnessing the desolations of the church, and though personally preserved from the fury of persecution, she suffered bitterly in some of her nearest relations. After Rutherford was laid in the dust, she cherished his memory with affectionate veneration, and in token of her remembrance, liberally extended her beneficence and kindness to his widow and only surviving daughter. This we find adverted to in a letter addressed to her by Mr. Robert McWard from Rotterdam, October 2nd, but without the date of the year. Madam, says he, Mrs. Rutherford gives me often an account of the singular testimonies which she meets with of your ladyship's affection to her and her daughter. If I could, though I had never had those personal obligations to your ladyship which I have, and under which I must die undischarged, I would look on myself as obliged upon this account to pray that God may remember and reward your labor of love shown to the dead and continued to the living. Footnote, Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 58, Folio Number 52. End footnote. The letters Rutherford had written to her, she carefully preserved, and when after his death the publication of a collection of his letters was resolved upon, very desirous that those of them in her possession should be included in the volume, she transmitted them to Holland to Mr. McWard, under whose superintendence the work was published at Rotterdam in 1664. When it was published, McWard sent her a copy in common binding, and some time after a copy bound in Morocco, which, however, never reached her, on learning which he sent her another copy in the same binding. Footnote Woodrow Manuscripts, Volume 58, Folio 56. End footnote. Soon after the restoration of Charles II, a deep wound was inflicted on the heart of Lady Kenmure by the cruel manner in which the government treated her brother, the Marquis of Argyle, who immediately on his arrival at Whitehall, whither he had proceeded from Scotland to offer his respectful congratulations to His Majesty, was by his order thrown into the Tower of London and afterward brought to trial before the Scottish Parliament by which he was condemned to be beheaded. Footnote. The circumstances connected with the apprehension, trial, and execution of the Marquis are more fully detailed in the sketch of the Marchioness of Argyle's life, which follows. In those days it would appear that, like astrologers who professed to foretell the fortunes of men from the aspect of the heavens, and the influence of the stars, physiognomists with equal absurdity pretended to read men's future destiny in their countenances. The following instance of this may be quoted as an illustration of the foolish superstition which at that period existed in the best educated and most enlightened circles of society. Alexander Colville, Justice Depute, an old servant of the house, told me that my lady Kenmure, a gracious lady, my lord's Marquis of Argyle's sister, 
from some little skill of physiognomy which Mr. Alexander had taught her, had told him some years ago that her brother would die in blood. Bailey's letters quoted in Kirkton's History, page 107. End quote. During the course of these proceedings and subsequently to them, she received kind letters of condolence from several of her friends. Rutherford, on hearing of the imprisonment of her brother in the tower, wrote to her from St. Andrews, July 24, 1660, saying, among other things, It is not my part to be unmindful of you. Be not afflicted for your brother, the Marquis of Argyle. As to the main and my weak apprehension, the seed of God being in him, and love to the people of God in his cause, it shall be well. Footnote, Rutherford's Letters, page 707. End footnote. After the execution of this nobleman, Mr. Robert McWard, footnote, Mr. Robert McWard, whose name has frequently occurred before, became minister of the Elder High Church, Glasgow, upon the death of Mr. Andrew Gray, who died in February 1656. He and Mr. John Baird, who became minister of Paisley when studying at the College of St. Andrews, were reckoned the two best scholars in all the college, and he maintained throughout life his reputation as a man of talent as well as of piety. Distinguished for the highly oratorical style of his pulpit compositions, on which he bestowed much labor, he was very popular. Referring to his ornate style, a friend observed that he was a brave, busking preacher, and on one occasion Mr. James Rowett, minister of Kilmarnock, said to him, God forgive you, brother, that darkens the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ by your oratory. McCord was a zealous Presbyterian and strongly opposed to the public resolutions. As might have been expected, he did not long escape persecution after the restoration of Charles II. Incurring the resentment of the government for the freedom and fidelity with which he expressed his sentiments in a sermon preached at Glasgow, from Amos 3.2 in February 1661. He was brought before the Parliament on the 6th of June that year, and on the 5th or 6th of July they passed sentence of banishment upon him but allowed him to remain six months in the nation. Removing to Holland, he became minister of the Scottish Congregation in Rotterdam, where with some temporary interruptions he continued to labor with diligence and success until his death, which took place about the year 1681 or 1682. He was married to the widow of Mr. John Graham, Provost of, Ca- of Glasgow. Wadros Analecta, Volume 3, page 55. End of footnote. After the execution of this nobleman, the Marquis of Argyle, Mr. Robert McWard, on his arrival in Holland, wrote to Lady Kenmure a letter in which, besides expressing his cordial sympathy with her under this trial, he directs and encourages her in reference to those dark times which had then come upon the Church of Scotland, as well as in regard to those still darker days which seemed to be at hand. After Adverting to the many personal and domestic afflictions she had suffered, he adds, And now, madam, it is apparent what the Lord hath been designing and doing about you in dealing so with you. For besides that he hath been thereby making your ladyship to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light, besides this, I say, which is common to your ladyship with all saints, 
He seems to have had this peculiar aim to fit you for a piece of hard service, and so your ladyship after these more private and personal conflicts seemed to be over or were forgotten, have had the honor amongst the first to be brought upon the stage, though not in your own person yet in your honorable and deservedly dear relations there to act a part very unpleasant to flesh and blood, even to see those who were to your ladyship as yourself slain. I may say it, and it is known to be true upon the matter." for the word of God and their testimony which they held. Thus he hath not hid sorrow from your eyes, and yet there is such a sweet mixture in the bitter cup as no doubt gives it so delectable and pleasant a relish that it is sweet in the belly, though not pleasant to the taste. Yea, he hath left your ladyship still upon the stage after that worthy hath been honorably dismissed and taken off with the approbation of well-done good and faithful servant, leaving his name for a blessing to the chosen of the Lord, and having given a noble example of suffering with joyfulness and of resisting unto blood, striving against sin, a mercy which few are like to find in this generation, wherein there is so strong a propension against all sorts to wrong the cause and wound their conscience before they endanger their persons. I say your ladyship is left still upon the stage not only to act patience and let it have its perfect work as to what is past and give the world a proof that the grace of God can make a person endure as one whom affliction cannot make miserable, whereas one void of such a supporting principle would in that case carry as if they thought they lived for no other purpose but to see themselves miserable but that you may act the faith and patience of the saints as to what is present and in regard to what is approaching, arming yourself with Christian courage and resolution how to carry when ye shall see grief added to your sorrow while ye beheld, behold that beautiful house wherein our fathers and we worship thrown down and nothing left of all that goodly fabric but some dark vestiges to be wept over by them that take pleasure in the stones and favor the dust of Zion. This calls your ladyship some way to forget the decay and in the world's account wherein things get not their right names, disgrace of your ever honor, honorable family and father's house, but now more honorable than ever that ye may remember to weep with Zion and lament because the glory is departed. Oh, the sad days that your ladyship is like to see if he do not shut your eyes in death and receive you in amongst the company of them who have come out of great tribulation and can weep no more because they see God. As for your ladyship's through-bearing in this backsliding time, trust him with that who hath everlasting arms underneath you to bear you up when you have no legs to walk. Hitherto hath he helped, and he will not lose the glory of what he hath done by leaving you now to faint and fall off. He will not give over guiding you by his counsel till he hath brought you to glory and put you beyond hazard of misguiding yourself. Footnote Wardrobe Manuscripts, Volume 58, Folio Number 53 End footnote Another of her relatives who suffered from the iniquity of the times was Lord Lorne, the eldest son of her brother, the Marquis of Argyle. Lorne, naturally indignant at the cruel treatment which his father and family had received at the hands of the Parliament, 
gave free expression to his sentiments in a confidential letter he sent to his friend, Lord Duffus. This letter being intercepted and carried to Middleton, that unprincipled statement resolved to make it the foundation of a capital charge against him. Disappointed in his hope of obtaining the estate of the Marquis of Argyle, which, through the intercession of Lauderdale, was gifted to Lord Lorne, who had married Lauderdale's lady's niece, Middleton thought he had now found a favorable opportunity of getting into his rapacious grasp the spoils of the Argyle family. Accordingly, he laid the letter before the Estates of Parliament, which voted it treasonable, and sent information to His Majesty, with a desire that Lorne, who was then in London, should be secured and sent down to Scotland to stand trial before the Parliament. Lorne was ordered to return to Scotland, though at the intercession of Lauderdale, who personally became bail for his appearance, he was not sent down as a prisoner and arriving in Edinburgh on the 17th of July, 1662, he was immediately charged to appear at the bar of the house on the afternoon of that day, which he did. That same night he was committed prisoner to the castle, and on the 26th of August was sentenced to be beheaded, and his lands, goods, and estate forfeited for treasonable speeches and writings against the Parliament. The time of the execution of the sentence being remitted to, remitted to the king. He lay in prison in the castle till Middleton's fall, when he was liberated in June 1663, and was soon, soon after restored to his grandfather's estate with the title of Earl of Argyll. Footnote. Wardrow's History, Volume 1, page 297 and 388. Aikman's History, Volume 4, page 500. Rowe's Life of Robert Blair, page 469. End footnote. During the time of Lorne's imprisonment, McWard wrote to Lady Kenmure a letter in which, among other things, he particularly animadverts upon this additional instance of the injustice and cruelty exercised toward the noble house of Argyle. The portion of it relating to Lorne's imprisonment may be quoted as, besides containing a vindication of the prisoner's father, the Marquis of Argyle, and describing the true character of the proceedings of that unprincipled government, it illustrates the pious and patriotic spirit of this noble lady. The men, says he, who have sold themselves to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, have stretched forth their hand against your ladyship's honorable and truly noble family. They made that worthy, whose name is savory among his people, the butt of their malice, and as if that had not been enough, they persecute with deadly malice his honorable and hopeful posterity, that their name may be no more in remembrance. But have they slain and also taken possession? And will he not bring evil upon them and their posterity for this, and for the provocation wherewith they have provoked him to anger and made Israel to sin? But what wonder that they have stretched forth their hand against his worthies, who have been honored to be singularly useful and instrumental in his work, when it has come to this, that in a land solemnly sworn away to God, the Son of Man hath not so much left him, even by law, as whereupon to lay his head, except it be upon a cold stone in a prison. We have laws now framed by the throne of iniquity and in force and by these laws he must die or be driven away. 
the men who have taken first the life and then the lands of him whom, whom God hath taken off the stage with so much true honor, they have spoiled Christ also of his prerogative, and say by what they do, This man shall not reign over us, we have no king but Caesar. And his people of their privilege, saying to them, Bow down that we may go over you. I believe while your ladyship remembers these last, ye forget the first. However, your ladyship and all the rest of his honorable relations may be confident and comforted in the hope of it when he comes to count with these men and cause them answer for that. Thus a majesty whereof they are guilty against God, he will make inquisition for blood, yea, that that blood, and make them sensible how sadly he resents the injuries done to that house, and will, if ever, he build up Zion, and appear in his glory in the land, as I desire to believe he will, restore the honor of that family with such a considerable overplus of splendor, as shall make them who see it say, Verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily he is a God that judgeth in the earth. But, madam, I know, since God hath learned to prefer Jerusalem to your chief joy, a rare mercy amid a generation who are crying, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation, that ye forget to sorrow for your father's house and weep when ye remember Zion. It no doubt makes your sighing come before ye, ye eat, to see the ruins of that so lately beautiful fabric wherein ye, with the rest of his people, worshipped. Who can be but sad that hath the heart of a child to consider how the songs of the sanctuary are turned into howling? Footnote Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 58, Folio Number 59 End footnote From the allusion in the last sentence quoted, the reader will perceive that at the time when this letter was written, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland had been overthrown. Charles II had got it into his head that presbytery was not a religion for a gentleman, an opinion of which the foundation no doubt was what a young monarch of licentious morals could not easily brook, the strict surveillance which the Presbyterian Church exercised over the manners of all her members without respect of persons, and no sooner was he restored to his throne than he and the base men selected by him for his counselors were determined not to suffer the offense and reproach of such an ill-bred religion to remain in the land, no, not even in the form of a dissenting body. Nor was it by gradual encroachments that they resolved to sap the foundations of the Scottish Presbyterian Church. Too impatient to wait, to wait the operation of slow and insidious measures, they proceeded openly, summarily, and by violence. Such ministers as did not conform against a certain day were to be unceremoniously ejected. No soft words were to be employed. No gentle acts of persuasion were to be resorted to with the view of bringing them to submission. The law, with its severe penalties, which were deemed a sufficient argument, was promulgated, and stern and unbending, it was to take its course on all the disobedient. The majority of the ministers conformed, though they had sworn against prelacy, but a noble army of nearly four hundred of them refused compliance, preferring to suffer rather than depart with their integrity. 
They were, in consequence, driven from their people who were thus deprived of the ordinances of the gospel and who mourned the loss of their faithful pastors as a family bereavement. To this calamitous state of things, McWard, in the same letter, proceeds to advert more particularly. He dwells upon the sorrow which he knew Lady Kenmere felt because her ear did not hear the joyful sound nor her eyes see her teachers and that she was not now made glad in the sanctuary as in former days when she had been abundantly satisfied with the fatness of God's house and made to drink with delight of the rivers of his pleasure, his banner over her being love. You have now known of a long time, says he, what it is to live and almost languish in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, where all the streams of creature contentments have been dried up and diverted by the scorching heat of fiery trials. But this, I know, is the hardest and heaviest of all, that the streams of the sanctuary which did refresh the city of God are dried up, and that these ordinances of life in the use whereof God doth ordinarily set forth and impart much of his loving kindness which is better than life, are taken away from you. And he concludes by observing that though he knew it to be grieving to her to see the faithful feeders put from their work and God's house of prayer turned into a den of thieves who come not in by the door and how the valley of vision was become a dungeon of Egyptian darkness yet that it would comfort her in a great measure notwithstanding all that had happened if she saw the ministers of the Lord zealous and carrying like men of understanding who knew the times and what Israel ought to do and not as asses crouching between the burdens. Footnote, Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 58, Folio Number 59 End footnote In the welfare and happiness of the ministers ejected from their charges for nonconformity, Lady Kenmure took a deep interest being warmly attached to the cause in which they suffered. Their integrity and conscientiousness in renouncing their livings rather than do violence to their conscience excited both her approval and admiration. And if she could not restore them to the places from which they were extruded, she was willing, according to her ability, to mitigate the privations and hardships of their lot. After the death of her son, Lord Viscount Kinmure, and of her second husband, the Honorable Sir Henry Montgomery of Giffen, her pecuniary means were indeed much reduced, but having devoted herself and her all to the Savior who redeemed her, she was liberal in communicating even beyond her ability to the necessities of the suffering Presbyterian ministers, and these acts of benevolence and generosity which she felt to be sacred duties she performed with a readiness and an alacrity corresponding to the deep sense she had of a Savior's love. Mr. Robert McWard, among others, was a sharer of her bounty. She frequently sent remittances to him in his straits when he was in Holland, of which he makes grateful mention in most of his letters to her, as well as refers to her profuse beneficence toward others who suffered for righteousness' sake and who were in needy circumstances. In one of his letters to her, without date, but which, as appears from internal evidence, was written subsequently to the martyrdom of the Marquis of Argyle, and from Holland, after apologizing for taking the liberty of writing to her, he says, 
It flows from an affectionate respect which your ladyship's undeserved kindness and bounty toward me in my strait, whereof I hope to cease to be sensible and cease to be altogether, hath made a debt which I can never forbear to acknowledge, though I am not in case to requite it, without the imputation of baseness and ingratitude. Footnote. Wadro Manuscripts. Volume 58. Folio number 53. End footnote. In another letter to her from Rotterdam in 1668, he writes, Your ladyship hath put me off to seek what to say, but never more than by your last. I am truly at a loss for words to express myself about it. And I can assure you, madam, that it was a trouble to me to think how prodigal ye have been toward me at such a time, when I know well what the riches of your liberality are to others, and how much they who should give you what God hath made your own pinch you in withholding what they ought to give, what shall I say? But I see I must be among the rest, and with the first of them who bear record of your doing even beyond power, and to make it appear that ye have in the first place given your own self unto the Lord, that ye give in the second place yourself and what ever God hath given to you, to those whom ye suppose to have given themselves to God. Madam, when I can neither requite these high favors nor deserve them, I desire to have a complacency in the thoughts of what a rich reward abides you from him who is faithful and will never forget your work and labor of love showed toward his name. If he will not forget a cup of cold water which is given by the hand of him who boiled it before he gave it, in the fire of love to God which burns in his bosom, how much more must these great givings be an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing unto God. Footnote Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 58, Folio Number 54 End footnote Mr. John Carstairs, Minister of the High Church of Glasgow at the Restoration, had also received tokens of her goodwill. In a letter to his wife, May 27, 1664, from Ireland, whither he had fled to escape persecution, he says, Present my humble service and tenderest respects to my noble Lady Kenmure. The Lord remember and graciously reward all her labor of love. Footnote Letters of Mr. John Carstairs, etc., etc., edited by the Reverend William Ferry, Amstruther, Easter, page 120. End footnote. Mr. McWard, having come to London about the year 1669, resolved to visit some of his friends in Scotland, and among others, Lady Kenmure. In a letter to her without date, footnote, the following extract from a letter of Mr. McWard to Mr. John Carstairs, but without date, may assist us in determining the time when this letter was written to Lady Kenmure. Speaking of Mr. John Dixon, McWard says, I have neither seen nor written to him since the time I first went down with you to Scotland, if I be not mistaken, when that wretched indulgence had its birth. When will we see its burial? Wadro Manuscripts, Volume 57, Folio Number 15. The only difficulty here is 
Brother McWard refers to the first indulgence granted in July 1669 or to the second granted in September 1672, but from an allusion to his visiting Lady Kenyer, apparently when he visited Scotland, contained in a letter to her dated March 5, 1672, more than six months before the second indulgence had in existence, it is highly probable that he refers to the first. End footnote. In a letter to her without date, but which was probably written from Edinburgh about the close of the year 1669 or the beginning of the year 1670, after informing her that in the beginning of winter he was advised by friends to withdraw from London, which he did after he had kept himself almost a prisoner from some time, and that Thereafter he had stayed in another place in England longer than he intended, he says, The condition, the sad condition of this poor remnant, together with the desire I had once more to see some few friends, among whom I particularly intended to wait upon your ladyship at conveniency, made me adventure to come to this place. I have desired the bearer, footnote, probably Mr. John Carstairs, end footnote, who is the only minister, save one other, residing in this city to whom I have yet made myself known, to inquire at your ladyship when, without being a trouble or disturbance to you, I may wait upon you. He adds, Madam, I have had some account from him of your condition, and though I know that the things which ye see and hear and daily find are enough to make your ladyship long for a past that after all your inward trouble and outward tossings your tired and weary soul may rest in his everlasting embraces, after whom ye have been made to pant, and for whose coming ye are now looking. Yet I cannot deny but that I am so cruel as to be content that your ladyship is yet with us to weep and sigh over the dust of Zion. Yea, I am confident you will be content to suspend your everlasting satisfaction which is made sure to you for some years or days, if you may be but helped, now when the strength of the bearers of burdens is gone, to lift up a burden for a fallen church and to grieve over our departed glory. Footnote, Quadro Manuscripts, Volume 58, Folio Number 57 on receiving this communication, Lady Kemure lost no time in intimating to her old friend and valued correspondent when he might wait upon her, and in giving him to understand how welcome would be the sight and converse of one who had suffered for his master and by whose letters she had been instructed and comforted. Their meeting was agreeable and refreshing to them both. In the ward, she found one who had the tongue of the learned and who could speak a word in season to them that were weary. In her, he found a Christian who, trained in the school of affliction, had attained to no ordinary degree of eminence in the Christian graces, and who seemed to feel more deeply the distressed state of the church than the bodily infirmities which were pressing her down to the dust. To this visit he seems to refer in a letter which he addressed to her from Rotterdam, March 5, 1672, in which he mentions mentions it as one thing which did often refresh and comfort him concerning the reality and greenness of the grace of God in her, 
when he had occasion to see her upon her bed of languishing, namely, his finding that notwithstanding of all these weights and pressures of bodily infirmities under which her outward man was wasting, yet Zion and the concerns of our Lord Jesus Christ had a chief place in her thoughts, she resolving to prefer his interests to her chief joy and greatest sorrows. Footnote, Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 58, Folio Number 62. End footnote. Lady Kenmere was now far advanced in years, and during her lengthened life she had seen many changes in the beloved church of her native land. She had beheld the triumph of its liberties after a protracted struggle of many years over the arbitrary power of princes, and had seen the banner of the covenant unfurled and floating throughout the length and breadth of Scotland. She had again witnessed these liberties prostrated and trampled in the dust by a monarch who was sworn to maintain them, and a grinding persecution carried on against such as, faithful to their covenant engagement, scorned to surrender them. But time, with its many changes so far from altering, had only served to confirm her original sentiments on ecclesiastical questions. The good old cause was still the good old cause for her. Madam, says MacWard in the letter last quoted, as it hath been observed by many of your intimate Christian acquaintance that this hath been a piece of his gracious kindness to you to keep you still upon his side in an evil time and to warm your soul into a good degree of holy heat and jealousy for God, his concerns, crown, and kingdom, so he continues to be gracious to you in this matter still and to make you a comfort to such who take pleasure in the dust of Zion. How great a mercy is this when the breath of most men, the breath of most professors, nay, alas, the breath of most ministers, who by their fervor should warm the souls of others, is so cold that it doth plainly discover a falling from first love and a want of divine zeal for him and fervent desire for the coming of his kingdom in the world. This which he hath given you is a pearl of great price, a jewel of more value than the whole universe. Nay, this is something above the reality of grace and beyond every exercise of real grace. This is to carry like your father's child when the coming of his kingdom is the inward echo of your soul. Footnote. Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 58, Number 62. End footnote. The precise date of Lady Kenmuir's death we have not been able to ascertain. She was alive in August 1672, for when Mr. John Livingstone, who died on the 19th of August that year, was giving some of his friends an account of God's goodness to him during the course of his earthly pilgrimage the day before his death, and recounting it as one of the divine mercies conferred upon him that he had been acquainted with many eminent Christians in his youth, he named two the tutor of Bonington, and Lady Kenmure, who is, said he, the oldest Christian acquaintance I have now alive. But she was at that time in so very weak and infirm a state of health that McWard, in a letter to her dated August 30, 1672, expresses his fears that it might possibly be his last letter to her, and whether it might come to her or find her in the land of the living. Footnote, Wadrow Manuscripts, Volume 58, folio number 63, end footnote. It would no doubt be interesting to know the circumstances connected with the last sickness and death of a lady so eminent for piety. 
but these have not been transmitted to posterity. We have, however, traced her from early life to advanced age, and we have seen throughout that whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, and of good report, on these things she thought, and these things she practiced. Although, then, we lose sight of her at the closing scene, we may be sure that the light of heaven rested upon it, dispelling the darkness of death and the grave. And whether she gave utterance to the triumphant exclamation of the Apostle Paul in the prospect of his departure, or no, that exclamation from her dying lips would have been an appropriate close to a life which so eminently exemplified the Christian graces, faith, purity, humility, charity. I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Lady Margaret Douglas, Marchioness of Argyle Lady Margaret Douglas was descended from a noble family of no inconsiderable antiquity and renown. Her great-grandfather, William Douglas, 6th Earl of Morton, was a nobleman who inherited the magnanimity of the Douglases, tempered by the milder virtues of his illustrious relative, the Regent Murray. His public conduct was marked by independence. While he maintained all the hospitality and even magnificence of the ancient barons, his domestic arrangements were conducted and his fine family reared up in accordance with the purity of his morals and the strict regard which he uniformly showed to the duties of religion. He was a warm and steady friend to the Presbyterian Church. The sickness which soon put an end to his days prevented him from attending in his place at Perth. Footnote. The reference is to the Parliament which met at Perth in August 1606, by which the bishops were restored to all their ancient dignities and prerogatives. End footnote. But he expressed his strong disapprobation of the act restoring episcopacy, and with his dying breath predicted the evils which it would entail on the country. Footnote. McCree's Life of Melville, Volume 2, page 220. James Melville designates him the good old Earl of Morton. Melville's Diary, page 560. See also Calderwood's History, Volume 6, page 263. End footnote. Her father, William, 7th Earl of Morton, who was born in 1582 and served heir to his father on the 3rd of July, 1605, was a nobleman of good natural talents which were highly improved by a liberal education and travels in foreign parts. Previous to the breaking out of the civil wars occasioned by the disputes between Charles I and his Parliament, the Earl of Morton was one of the richest and greatest subjects in the kingdom and such was the zeal which, with which he espoused the royal cause that to enable him to advance money for his support for its support he disposed of the noble property of Dalkeith and other estates to the value of not less than 100,000 pounds Scots of annual rent he died at Orkney on the 7th of August 1648 in the 66th year of his age footnote Douglas's peerage volume 2 page 193 274, 275, and Rose History, page 470. End footnote. 
by his wife Lady Anne Keith, eldest daughter of George, 5th Earl Marischal, he had a numerous offspring. Margaret, the subject of this sketch, who was the second daughter, was born about the year 1610. Of her youthful years no memorials are known to exist, but at an early age she was married to Archibald, Lord Lorne, afterward 8th Earl and 1st Marquis of Argyll, a nobleman of eminent piety and a warm friend of the Presbyterian interest to which he adhered with unwavering constancy and for which he at last was honoured to die a martyr. She also was distinguished for piety and held sentiments on ecclesiastical and religious questions similar to his. We are not exactly informed as to the time and circumstances in which either of them became the subject of serious religious impressions, but in both cases it appears to have been early. True religion shed its hallowed and ennobling influence over their domestic life, sweetening its enjoyments as well as lightening its trials, and rendered their whole deportment a living epistle of Christ, known and read of all men. It was the custom of the Marquis to arise at five, in the, five o'clock in the morning and to continue in private till eight o'clock. And besides family worship and private prayer in the morning and evening, he usually prayed with his lady at the same seasons, his valet and her maidservant being present. Footnote. Wadro's Analecta, Volume 1, page 22. Wadro received this information May 9, 1702, from Mr. Alexander Gordon, who was minister of Inverary many years before the restoration of Charles II, and who had therefore the best means of knowing. Mr. Gordon also informed him that when the Marquis went abroad, though but for one night, it was his practice to take with him his notebook and inkstand with the English Notes Bible and Newman's Concordance. In another part of the Analecta, we find the following interesting notice relating to Argyll's conversion. Mr. James Sterling tells me that from good hands he had it that during the assembly at Glasgow, Mr. Henderson and other ministers spent many nights in prayer with the Marquis of Argyll, and that he dated either his conversion or the knowledge of it from these times. End of footnote. How beautiful an example of domestic piety! and how excellent a means of training that pious pair for acting a Christian and a noble part amid those tragic scenes through which they had afterward to pass and in which they acquitted themselves so well. Both of them, too, highly valued the preaching of the gospel in the society of the eminent ministers of their day. As an instance of this, it may be mentioned that the well-known Mr. David Dixon with his wife and children resided two years in their family at Inverary during which time Dixon and Mr. Gordon, the minister of the parish, divided the services of the Sabbath between them, the former preaching in the forenoon and the latter in the afternoon, while Mr. Patrick Simpson preached on the Thursdays. Footnote. Wadrow's Analecta, Volume 1, page 22. Mr. Gordon, to whom Wadrow was indebted for this fact, also told him that Argyle always took notes of the sermon. End footnote. The first family incident we meet with in the history of the Marchioness of Argyle is a dangerous illness with which she was attacked at the time of her first confinement. The physicians who attended her when consulted gave it as their opinion that her life could not be preserved without destroying that of the child. But from this proposal the heart of the mother recoiled 
and on no consideration would she give her consent. In the good providence of God, however, the life both of the mother and of the infant was saved. This child was afterward the Earl of Argyle, who suffered in 1685. Footnote. Waddell's Analecta, Volume 2, page 138. End footnote. During the subsequent part of her life, no important facts are known till we come to the severe domestic trials which she was doomed to suffer. These we shall now proceed to relate. It has been said that every pathetic tale, in order to interest, must have a villain to boast of, a principle well understood by the masters of tragedy who, while they excite our sympathies by the great and varied distresses of the personages they introduce upon the stage, almost never fail to bring prominently forward some character of deep depravity as the cause of these distresses, thus enhancing the interest of the scene by stirring from their depths other emotions of our nature, such as horror and indignation at hypocrisy, treachery, cruelty, and other forms of vice which may be elicited in the drama. Of this element of interest, the life of this lady is not destitute and Charles II was the evil genius who broke in upon its peace and happiness. The first of her domestic trials, which we shall mention, is the affecting case of her eldest daughter, Lady Anne. When Charles II arrived in Scotland in the year 1650, Argyll, though during the Second Reformation and down to that year he had acted a conspicuous part in the defense of the Presbyterian cause, and had been almost dictator of Scotland, yet welcomed him with the most devoted loyalty. He, however, at the same time told him that he could not serve him as he desired unless he gave some decided evidence of his fixed determination to support the Presbyterian party, and that he thought this would be best done by marrying into some family of rank, known to be entirely devoted to that interest, hinting that this would, in a great measure, remove the prejudices entertained by both Scotland and England against him on account of his mother, who was a papist, and suggesting his own daughter as the most proper match for him. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 97. End footnote. How strangely does the ambition of worldly honor and power sometimes gain the ascendancy over the better judgment of even wise and good men. Argyle must have known enough, and more than enough, of the profligate character of Charles to convince him that in projecting such a matrimonial alliance, he was exposing to the highest peril the happiness of his daughter for the prospect of gaining her the glitter of a few short years in a corrupt court. But views of ambition, and not the happiness of his daughter, were the motives which appear to have guided him in this matter. Another influence bearing on his mind was the principle of self-preservation. Perceiving that should those men, whom he had unavoidably made his enemies when almost dictator of Scotland, be raised to places of power upon the accession of Charles, he would be in great danger of falling a sacrifice to their malice, he hoped in this way effectually to secure himself from all such peril. But his hopes of aggrandizement or safety from this source were castles built in the air, and they were destined to suffer a severe disappointment. To the proposal Charles indeed consented and promised all fidelity, but he was too much of the cavalier. He had too strong a liking for the malignant party ever to think seriously of wedding with a Presbyterian's daughter. His promise he never fulfilled, and he never intended to fulfill it. 
the consequences to the accomplished young lady were very distressing. With the simple and unsuspecting confidence of her inexperienced youth, she relied upon his honor and sincerity. Her parents had not taught her to doubt or mistrust him. At least her father had not done so, and if her mother had warned her of her danger, she heeded it not. And when Charles disappointed her, when he appeared to her in the stern reality of his true character, a heartless deceiver, faithless to her as he had proved to the religion he had sworn to maintain, her mental agitation and distress became great. All her enchanting and fondly cherished prospects of becoming the wife of Charles and Queen of Britain, which had been the dream of her young imagination, were dissipated. Her tenderest affections were cruelly lacerated by the object around which they were entwined. Her earthly hopes and happiness seemed extinguished forever. Her spirits sunk and her health became impaired. Yea, under the extreme mental agitation she daily and hourly experienced, her reason itself began to reel, and she at last became quite insane, fit only to point a moral or adorn a tale. In the calamity which befell his daughter, Argyll had too much reason for self-reproach. His worldly policy, which true wisdom condemned, while it accomplished the ruin of his daughter, was defeated in its every object. Cookton, after stating that the Marquis was moved to strike up this match from the hope of securing himself from his enemies, and that all the poor family had by the bargain was a disappointment so grievous to the poor young lady that of a gallant young gentlewoman she lost her spirit and turned absolutely distracted, quaintly but justly adds, so unfortunately do the back wheels of private designs work in the puppet plays of the public revolutions in the world. Footnote, Kirkton's History, page 50. End footnote. This was a severe and continued living trial to the Marchioness. Whether she was favorably disposed toward the match, we are not informed, although there is reason to believe she was not, and that she entertained fears that it might be far from issuing in the happy consequences which the Marquis anticipated. We know at least that, plausible and insinuating as the manners of Charles were, she formed a very low opinion of his character at an early period, indeed long before its dark features were fully developed or discovered, regarding him as at once unprincipled, hypocritical, and revengeful. This will appear from the following anecdote, which rests on good authority. Charles, after he came to Scotland and was crowned in 1650, became so flagrantly lewd in his conduct, spent so large a part of his time in drinking, and favored malignant so much, notwithstanding his having sworn the Song League and Covenant, that the religious people about the court urgently requested Argyle to take the liberty of freely remonstrating with him. Argyle, who had waited long for such an opportunity, did so one Sabbath night at Stirling. After supper, he went in with his majesty to his closet, and there, with much freedom, but at the same time, with much humility, laid before him the sinfulness of his conduct. Charles, so far from appearing to be offended, seemed serious and even shed tears, and so earnest did the matter to all appearance become, that they prayed and mourned together till two or three o'clock in the morning. The Marquis, charitably entertaining, the most favorable opinion of the character and professions of Charles was disposed to congratulate himself upon his success. And when he came home to his lady, who was surprised at his absence, 
and told him she never she never knew him stop from home till so late an hour, he said that he had never passed so pleasant a night in the world, and informed her of all that took place. But she put a very different construction upon the adventure and drew very different conclusions from it. She believed that Charles was both insincere and vindictive, that it was not safe to, mer- to remonstrate with him, and that her husband had committed an offense which the monarch would never forgive. Such was her belief, and she freely expressed it. No sooner did she hear of Charles' professions of sorrow and of the tears he shed than she said that they were crocodile tears, and that what the Marquis had done that night would cost him his head. Nor was she mistaken. When offended at liberties taken to reprove him for his conduct, Charles possessed in no small degree the power of suppressing the manifestation of his feelings and of seeming even grateful to his monitor. But freedoms of this sort he was not accustomed to forgive and only waited his opportunity to take revenge. From that moment he bore an irreconcilable hatred to the Marquis, though the royal hypocrite in addressing him still continued to call him father. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T-6-L-3-T-5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important, 
when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.